Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Esther Figueroa. Esther Figueroa, PhD, is a Jamaican independent filmmaker, writer, educator, and linguist with over 35 years of media productions, including television programming, documentaries, educational videos, multimedia, and feature film. Her activist filmmaking gives voice to those outside of mainstream media and focuses on the perpetuation of local and indigenous knowledge and cultures, the environment, social injustice, and community empowerment. Figaro's films are screened and televised all over the world and taught at numerous universities. They include Jamaica for Sale 2009, the award-winning feature documentary about tourism and unsustainable development. Her latest feature documentary, Fly Me to the Moon 2019, is about modernity and the global aluminum industry. She recently created and co-hosted GEFF 2020 and GEFF 2021. It's the first online film festival focused on global extraction. Her environmental novel, and you're going to do one in 2022 also? Well, hopefully. Okay. Well, let's do an interview beforehand to promote that one. Great. Her environmental novel, Limbo 2013, was a finalist in the 2014 National Indie Excellence Awards for Multicultural Fiction. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. And second, thank you for being in the program. Thank you, Derek. Love talking with you. Yeah, it's great to talk with you too. So for many years, I've wanted to do an interview about bauxite mining, and um, you seem like the perfect person to interview about that. So can you introduce listeners to bauxite mining, and if you want bauxite mining in Jamaica, but also the, the global picture of it? Okay, great. Well, bauxite mining is related to aluminum, and aluminum, as we know, is something that we all use. It's kind of everywhere in life, everything from uh, food packaging to um, airplanes, to explosives, to bombs, to medical and pharmaceuticals, really across the board. And bauxite is the first part of the process. It is the natural, uh, it's basically soil that is extracted through um, a very invasive and destructive strip mining process because the soil, um, the bauxite that is needed is quite near to the surface, though um, in places like Jamaica and in other places it's a, a bit further down. But what happens is they basically destroy everything, you know, they kill all the trees, the plants, they remove everything, and then they dig up the soil. So why do they dig up the soil? It's because aluminum itself, which is the most um, common um, metal in the earth, um, can never be found by itself. It's always combined with other minerals and metals. So what happens is um, it is found quite, it's found in lots of different types of soil, but the soil it's called bauxite is where it's found in large amounts. And the name just comes from the French town of Beau, which in the 19th century, um, chemists looking for this um, began extracting bauxite. How it relates to Jamaica is because um, because aluminum is so essential to the military industrial complex, during World War II, all the different war powers that were, um, you know, part of this awful um, military exercises across the world needed aluminum. They needed it for their uh, fighter planes, for their um, ships, for everything from, you know, meals for soldiers in the field, for the cigarette packaging that they were giving this, the cigarettes to the soldiers, for the chewing gum, etc. And so there was, Jamaica was a colony of Britain, as so was a quarter of the world, and we were there to be extracted. What was happening was that Germany was um, interrupting the the flow of bauxite, which was coming from the Americas, it was coming from the Guyanas in South America, that were then colonies of Britain, France, and the Netherlands. They were blowing up the ships that were transporting it to North America to be refined. And so because Jamaica was a colony of England and closer to the US and Canada, where 
aluminum was being refined, it was thought that Jamaica would be a good place. And so in the 40s, under the British colonial rule and under their war act, they started to look for bauxite in Jamaica and started to experiment with it to see the quality, et cetera. What this led to was that in 1950, Jamaica began to become central to the global bauxite industry. So Alcan, which was the Canadian aluminum company, Reynolds and Kaiser, which were US multinationals, opened facilities in Jamaica. And some years later, Alcoa and other major, major multinationals started in Jamaica extracting bauxite. That means going to different parts of Jamaica, digging up the soil and exporting it, or they then built alumina refineries. Alumina is the second stage in creating aluminum. What that means is that the bauxite, that's the soil that was growing plants and trees and feeding people that is dug up, is then heated at very, very, very high rates. Caustic soda is added to it. And it takes four tons of bauxite to create one ton of alumina. Alumina then is this white powder from which it is then itself smelted at very, very, very high rates and becomes aluminum. And it takes two tons of alumina to create one ton of aluminum. So over time, there were four alumina refineries in Jamaica. They create huge amounts of toxic alkaline waste. Nothing can grow in this waste. It's basically the tailings. All, all extractive processes create waste. And for the alumina process, it takes about twice as much. So if you have a ton of, of, of bauxite, it takes about, creates about two tons of waste when you create alumina. So you have in Jamaica right now, the continuation of bauxite being mined, about 25% of Jamaica is been identified of, as having high quality bauxite. And currently uh, about uh, six parishes in Jamaica are strip mined for bauxite. We have four alumina refineries of which only one is currently functional. And this is of important information because just two weeks ago, one of the alumina refineries, which used to be the Alcoa refinery, it's now owned by the government of Jamaica and a company that just went bankrupt called Noble Group, caught on fire and is no longer functional. Why is this important news? It's important news because during the pandemic, there has been disruptions in the production and the, the whole chain of uh, global circulation and prices have risen. The fact that only one of the aluminary factories in Jamaica is functioning means that the prices for aluminum will go up even further. So thank you for that. Can can we back up a second and sure. just go very quickly on, um, give the Chamber of Commerce speech for why aluminum <laughs> is great. Um, I mean, my understanding is basically aluminum is really useful because it's really light and pretty strong is that basically the end of it, or is there is there is aluminum useful for industry and packaging for more reasons than that? It's it's incredibly versatile, right? So it's lightweight, and that's why my film "Fly Me to the Moon," um, you know, starts off with a moon landing because all space flight uh, exploration, you know, all uh, aero you know, um, development in terms of planes and flight and all of that kind of stuff have depended on aluminum. 
but it's very versatile. So for example, it's in all kinds of things you don't think about. It's in paint, for example, it's in women's cosmetics, it's in deodorant, um, all sorts of things because it's chemically, um, it's in explosives because aluminum combines with other chemicals in all sorts of ways, okay? Whether um, to, you know, make it, uh, more stable or more explosive, etc. So yes, it's lightweight, it's durable, and it's very, it's very, very um, can be used in many, many different ways. It's also recyclable, supposedly, right? Um, but the bottom line, why aluminum became the the basically metal of modernity, is because it's cheap. Okay. It's way more cheap than uh, carbon fiber or gold or nickel or copper, anything you can think of. And you have to ask, why is it so cheap? It's so cheap, not just because it is so abundant in the earth. It's so cheap because of the colonial political economy. In other words, places like Jamaica and, uh, you know, Guyana, Suriname, places like in Africa, um, like uh, Ghana, you know, places in Australia, which are indigenous people's homelands that are dug up, places all over the world, Brazil, where bauxite is dug up, the companies that are doing this pay so small amounts, okay, starting, it's been going on for over 100 years. So it's always been a colonial relationship, right? An extractive colonial relationship. The thing to remember is in the time of Napoleon, aluminum was actually so uh, valued that it was more than gold, okay? more than platinum, more than gold. The aristocracy had aluminum, uh, you know, what we call silverware now, <laughs> aluminum utensils that they brought out so that to show off that they could afford this very, very expensive metal. What happened was when it was, when they were able to find a way to produce it more cheaply, and when they were able to source the bauxite, right, at such cheap uh, amounts, so that in Jamaica, for example, originally, Jamaica was getting about 20, a shilling a pound, a ton, which was about 20 cents a ton, okay, for our soil. And as you know, it takes Mother Earth millions of years to create soil, right? So the consequences for that loss are extreme. So it's not just that aluminum, yes, it's lightweight, it's durable, it's incredibly versatile, but it's also because of the colonial political economy of the global world been very, very cheap. So let's talk about the other half of flying to the moon, which is the moonscapes left by bauxite mining. Um, can you talk about, well, first off, how big would a typical bauxite mine be? And um, is it just an open pit? And then what happens when it's played out? Um, talk, talk about the, the, the effects. Don't, let's, let's not go to the, to, the, to the refining or smelting and the toxic effects of the tailings yet. Yeah. Let, let's just talk about the mine, sure. the mine sure. place itself. Sure. Well, the thing to remember is that there is bauxite soil, like I mentioned, in supposedly 25% of Jamaica. It's not mined uh, in the upper class suburbs, right? <laughs> There's bauxite soil under upper class suburbs um, in the Kingston area in Jamaica. No. Where is it mined? It's mined in the deep rural areas where um, the people have developed 
a, a heritage and a, a based around subsistence and small scale agriculture that goes back to when they were either able to escape from enslavement, because remember plantation agriculture in Jamaica, starting first with the Spanish and then the English was based first on the indigenous Tainos and then the importation of millions of Africans, okay? So those that were able to either escape enslavement or who were able to leave the plantations after so-called emancipation, set up their own communities, their own villages, their own ways of continuity culturally and in the new world, as we call this area. And they grew food, food to feed themselves, to feed their communities and to feed the larger world, including during colonial era exporting, okay? So what we're talking about is the destruction of Jamaica's rural peoples, their heritage, the land, and what feeds Jamaica. And it has led to the extraction of the people. So for example, after World War II, our mother, our, our mother England was in complete disarray after the world and turned to her colonies and said, come and help us to build us back. And many, many West Indians, including Jamaicans, left these rural areas and moved to Great Britain, where they built Britain back. So what happens when people leave? When they leave, they leave behind disrupted and empty spaces. They, they take their knowledge with them, etc. And what happened was that bauxite was part of that because remember 1950 going forward, the bauxite companies came in and they acquired up to 10% of Jamaica. And many rural people sold their land for very little and left. So we're talking a disruption in cultural continuity, heritage and knowledge, but also the ability for Jamaica to feed itself. Jamaica like many islands, especially tourist islands, which we will address later, um, imports about 85% or more, right, of our food. So what happens when you go in and you extract what is basically soil, and you've also killed the trees and the plants and taken away the habitat of the animals that feed and depend upon that soil and the, that habitat, you end up with barren scapes. Now the pits themselves, they vary in size. And one thing to remember is there's no kind of logical or careful way of doing this because bauxite, you might go into one area, the bauxite's not all in one place, right? So you're, you're, you're disturbing and you're destroying a much larger area, not just with the haul roads and the infrastructure that you need to get the trucks in and out, et cetera, but you're looking from place to place. So you're prospecting and you say, okay, there's bauxite here and there and there. So within a piece of land, you, you might be digging in four or five different places you might decide that, eh, that's not so great, and you move to the next, and you might find, oh, that's really great, and you might go down 30 meters, right? It just depends, but what it means is that you've either destroyed a large piece of land because you've gone, you know, you're just looking, and you've scraped hair, and you've destroyed there, and you've dug deep somewhere else, or you have really honed in on something and you've been at it for decades. There are pits that are still open for 30, 40 years or more, okay? This has been going on in Jamaica for over 70 years. And you have the encroachment because you've used up the bauxite here, you need to find it somewhere else. The quality is not so great. So you're always looking for new places. And so the last remaining place, which is this karst, the, the bauxite in Jamaica is usually found within this limestone karst type of environment. The place for that is called the Cockpit Country. This is a Western interior part of Jamaica, which is essential to Jamaica's water, 
to our last remaining intact forests and to heritage and to food. So they're looking to move into there and this is an area that we've been trying to protect. So it's not just that you have different, uh, you know, mining here, there and everywhere, but that you have to keep finding new sources to mine. Now, within the law, and actually going back to the 50s, Jamaica was a leader, supposedly, in what's called rehabilitation, because previous laws did not say anything about re rehabilitation. And Jamaican law said that the, the mines had to be, the pits had to be re rehabilitated. So the process was that six inches of topsoil was put apart, aside, and that was then to be put back on the land and the land was supposed to be made fertile again. Well, that's absolutely impossible, okay? So what you have now is that the Bauxite Institute, that's a government entity that kind of manages with, <laughs> manages the Bauxite, the aluminum industry in Jamaica, they've pretty much admitted that this is impossible. It's impossible to rehabilitate, meaning it's impossible to return the land and the soil to any previous form or any previous fertility. So what they've been pushing are, is greenhouse uh, agriculture that can only uh, grow certain types of food. It can't grow um, what are other forms of, of agriculture. And it's, it's not, it's neither um, the type of agriculture that would be, um, that has been practiced in Jamaica, nor is it, um, it requires uh, certain fertilizers and certain types of uh, technology. Um, and as you go through these different mined out areas, you will see these greenhouses, most of them are in some form of disrepair. And um, that's where we're left. We're basically left with barren landscapes and uh, dislocated and removed people, animals, and plants. So that that strikes me as a really good example of um, the movement from uh, local control to distant control in that if you have a community that is doing subsistence farming, by definition, they're fairly self-sufficient. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the point of subsistence farming. And um, once you are growing in a greenhouse, you are required to bring in external inputs. You mentioned the fertilizer. There's you know the infrastructure for the greenhouse. There is the the, the there are the pots. There are, um, is the soil that has to be brought in. It's it's which all of those are going to make money for distant entities. Absolutely, you've put your finger on it. Think again back to the notion that you had enslaved people who managed to create something for themselves out of nothing and out of historical trauma, okay? You then take from those people their independence, their ability to function without external inputs because remember, as far as I can tell, our governments, whether they're colonial, neo-colonial, or post-colonial, function simply to enable global capitalism on some level. And so any entity, right, whether it's indigenous people or newly indigenous people or pockets of people who refuse to be part of that global modernity, as I call it, what I called uh, um, you know, um, they are, have to be sacrificed and they have to be penalized in some kind of way. And so what you do, you say to these people, you're backward, your farming uh, techniques are inefficient. Let's go the compulsory modernity way. Let's make things efficient. Let's make them modern. And to do that, it can't just be you and your rags, you know, you're a shame to the nation, you know. We need you to have something shiny, maybe some aluminum greenhouse type thing, like you say, and we need all these inputs that you're now dependent on us to provide, both in terms of guidance, training, market, 
et cetera, et cetera. So it's part of the nation state, which is part of the global political economy, taking away the ability of people to live in small scale ways that are self-sufficient, that they have small economies of scale and take away their ability to function internally. You've put your finger on it exactly. This reminds me of a story told me by a friend who was married to someone from Bangladesh. And this is contemporary. This is not a hundred years ago. Um, the, the friend said that her ex-husband, um, when he was younger, so in the 80s, uh, he would, his mother would say, we need some lunch, so go to the river and get us some fish. And he would do that because there were so many fish in the river. And because of industry, uh, the river became so polluted that all the fish died. And now they have to buy their fish from Iceland. Right. And that's just seemed like the perfect example of, of this process. And the reason I bring up Bangladesh is that's literally on the other side of the world from what you're talking about. Oh yeah. It's, it's everywhere. As you know, Derek, it's everywhere. It's, it's especially the case in us countries that experience hundreds of years of colonization, but it's also the case in communities in places that are considered, you know, the first world and considered uh, to be, um, you know, the, the, the shining examples of functioning societies, right? It's across the board. It's the human condition. So let's move. Let's move to the uh, s- the refining and smelting processes. And can you talk briefly? One thing you haven't mentioned is energy use. And I yeah. know that I don't know about the alumina but I know that the final smelting is incredibly energy intensive. They, they both are, okay? So aluminum is, uh, has been said to be the most energy intensive industrial process in the world, okay? So the alumina process, interestingly that you mention uh, rivers and the people's ability to fish, because just a few weeks ago, we had yet another contamination of a river by an alumina refinery. This one owned by Roussel. Roussel is the, is the Russian um, huge multinational um, that came out of the raiding of the Soviet Union when it was split apart and the oligarchs got what they wanted. Um, so there is an alumina refinery that has been contaminating uh, a river called Rio Cobra in Jamaica for decades. It also contaminates the, the groundwater, et cetera, et cetera. And just the other day, the, the, the people were saying, you know, there were fish kills, you know, people are getting sick from using the water, you know, people fish for food. They also use the water for bathing, washing, um, you know, all the things that people do with with river water in countries like Jamaica. Of course, the fines are so low (laughs) that it's nothing to continue polluting the river. And uh, of course, as what happens with corporations, they simply deny it. They say, you can't prove it, right? You can't prove that it was us or if it was us, et cetera, et cetera. So onto the alumina refinery um, process. So you have the bauxite. The bauxite is dried and sorted, and then it's put into these um, kilns. It's called a bare process, where caustic soda is added and incredibly high heat um, is is added to this what's called a slurry. Um, it's said that electrical power represents about forty percent of the cost of producing aluminum. Um, And basically that's why you have not just um, in Jamaica, the the power that would be used for this would be the worst um, fossil fuels. It's called bunker oil, the cheapest type of oil. Um, And 
it's why the the final process, the aluminum process, is usually done around um, hydroelectric, or in places like um, the Middle East, um, they're cheap gas, so-called natural gas. And what happened in places like Iceland and Norway, where they're not just using hydroelectric, but also um, geothermal. So it's, it's something like 15 whatever kilowatt hours per kilogram, something like that. I'm not a, I'm not a scientist. I don't really, I can't break these things down, but I can tell you that the, the consumption of electricity is incredibly high because it has to be 24 seven. In other words, these kilns have to be running. They have to have electricity going through them 24 seven or they seize up, they cannot function. And then the whole plant goes down. The, the refinery goes down. Um, as I had started to mention before, we had a fire. So we've had traditionally four alumina refineries. And the thing to remember is that whoever has produces bauxite and it's exported right that's the lowest level of return economic return okay the next level of economic return is if you can refine it to the next level you get more money for alumina than you get for bauxite so uh governments of jamaica have very much been invested in trying to be at the next tier. We don't have the cheap electricity. We don't have hydropower. We don't have anything that could produce the third tier, which is aluminum. So of our four alumina refineries, one has been defunct for a very, very long time. One was defunct and was brought online for a year and a half and was made defunct again. The other one, the one by Roussel that is polluting the river, um, that's working at not maximal capacity by Roussel's choice. And then the fourth one that used to be the Alcoa refinery that's called Jamalco just recently had a fire. I, it's very mysterious what caused a fire. They won't say how many people were injured. People live right beside it within just meters beside it. So it was a disaster. It took over five hours to put out that fire. We don't have the capacity in Jamaica. Firefighters don't have that kind of technical ability. So the amount of toxins that were released, the amount of people that were injured, we don't know, but that refinery no longer happens. It's, it's offline. So we only have one. So a government that promotes this industry as essential, right? to the economic well-being of Jamaica is promoting an industry that actually is just exporting more and more bauxite at cheaper and cheaper rates and only has one functioning alumina refinery. So as I mentioned, basically the bauxite's brought in, it's processed, very high, uh, very high temperatures, out comes this white powder, aluminum oxide known as alumina, the tailings, which are alkaline, nothing can grow in them, um, are dumped. When they dry out, they blow in the wind, they destroy, they blow onto people's bodies and their homes. And uh, farmers, their, their crops are injured by this alkaline dust also that blows. So, um, it's something that doesn't go away. They don't even know how long that soil, not soil, but the tailings, whatever it is, will, it could be hundreds and hundreds of years where it will remain toxic and uh, won't be able to grow anything. We'll never be able to be rehabilitated. Two things. One of them is three things. One of them is that there are mines from ancient Rome that are the sites are still toxic. Two is I grew up in Colorado and up in the mountains, there were lots of old mines from the 18 from the 19th century. And the tailings piles were still completely bare of any uh, vegetation whatsoever. Um, and that's 100 years. So we have those examples, hundreds and, and literally a couple thousand years for the Romans. 
And then the third thing I want to say is that, you know, you've mentioned Russia, United States, Canada, and right now, you know, Max and other, a lot of other people are trying to stop a mine at Thacker Pass, which is run by, I believe, a Canadian uh, lithium company. And it's just really interesting to me. So one of my sisters is very conservative and she was a city council member for a small community in Virginia many years ago. And she and I disagree on many political issues, but at one point, somebody from Washington, DC, a, a person, Washington, DC, quite a ways from where she is in Virginia. Anyway, a, a person from Washington, DC wanted to put in a shopping mall. And I would have opposed the shopping mall had I been in her position just on principle. And she opposed it, not because she hates shopping malls, but because she thought it was terrible that a, a non-local person would control their local economy. So you see where I'm going with this, that a common feature of all of this, well, okay, one more story, which is I used to teach at Eastern Washington University. And one of my students one time was a, a former sawmill owner who had been put out of business by Weyerhaeuser. And he and I disagreed on many, many environmental issues. And we had some really interesting conversations about it. One of which I remember we ended up agreeing, even we disagree strongly on clear cutting, but he and I agreed that no one should be allowed to clear cut more than 500 yards from their home. And the point is that no matter what any of us think about mining, I think most of us who are in any way not corrupt think that no one should be allowed to put in a mine or a smelter or a refinery more than 100 yards from their home. Um, so if you're going to destroy it, you have to live with it. But this is Russia. This is Canada. This is United States. This is Britain. Everything is happening somewhere else. And I'm sure you have some many interesting things to say about that. Well, the thing is that it's not just that it's happening somewhere else with all these other places, it's happening internally. So one of the arguments that we always make to uh, Jamaican government officials, whether they're technocrats or whether they're ministers that um, are the ones who make these decisions is, okay, if it's so great, you go live there, right? I mean, basically let's do an exchange, right? Let's move you out of your upper-class mansion and let's move some of the rural people who have been displaced into your upper class mansion and you go, right? You go and live beside a bauxite pit that is being mined 24 seven with lights and noise and dust and uh, all that noise and just be around the raping of mother earth and see how nice that is, okay? You go live beside the refinery Okay, again, spewing toxic, noisy, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. None, okay, none of the upper management, a lot of the workers don't live there, because the, the local communities are usually, the workers are usually not taken from there. They usually don't have, they're usually so um, materially poor, or um, don't have the training or whatever, that uh, people are, are come in to these places and they don't live there, okay? So again, it's not just that these multinationals, okay? And that, you know, they started off as these vertically integrated multinational corporations, right? Alcoa, Alcan, et cetera, et cetera. That long ago, okay, went the way of your basic, um, you know, the, the vertically integrated corporations, they actually invested in places, you know, they actually did. That went the way of the basic most predatory capitalist who was simply interested in the quickest return on profit, destroy everything and leave, declare bankruptcy and leave, sell your, you know, sell and leave, et cetera, et cetera. Um, such as uh, Glencore and Mark Rich, okay? This is, these are the people who took over from the multinationals. So there was never even any commitment to investing anything, 
or giving anything despite their PR nonsense that these companies now produce about how great they are for communities. The fact is that if it's so great, I encourage the prime minister, I encourage the minister of mining and transportation, I encourage all the, you know, all the upper management, middle management, all the people who benefit from these operations to go and live in these places if it's so great. I remember having a discussion with a scientist friend of mine many years ago about uh, risk assessment. And um, I told him that I thought that the scientists involved, the, the technocrats involved in saying there will be no increase in cancers if you know we put in this mine, there will be no increase in illness that will do no harm to the environment. Um, I always, I suggested to him that the technocrats who actually make those decisions and who claim that nothing bad will happen um, actually have to have something at stake so that if, if it ends up that rates of illnesses go up, they, they sacrifice their own life. They put their rot, their at risk. And he immediately said, but if you did that, none of these minds would go in at all. Which was your point. Which was my point. <laughs> well, you know, Derek, one way they get around that is they don't keep track of anything, right? So um, they make sure that they don't keep track of, uh, of public health issues. Um, the company, what it does when there are issues is they send people to their own doctors, right? Um, to their own clinics. They make sure um, communities have tried to study these things. And again, they always do the, oh, you can't prove it. You know, prove it. It could be anything else. We all know that there's burning and people have bad diets. <laughs> you know, that whole argument, right? You can't prove it, even though you can show, right, that people working in these places have higher rates of X. People living in a radius of, you know, 10 miles or whatever have higher uh, rep respiratory illnesses, et cetera, et cetera. They have been studies, you can show it, but because you quote unquote can't prove it within our notion of what is proof and because the fines are so small, right? And so, yes, you know, the, the people who are the environmental scientists, quote unquote, who do these bogus EIAs of which, you know, here's the thing, and you know this because you've said it, the environmental movement, basically got conned, right? They got conned into putting energy into regulations and legal frameworks and participatory processes and all this human rights nonsense, right? That created these completely bogus theatrical processes where people are supposed to give consent to genocide and ecocide, right? Uh, and, you know, you can't give consent. So these processes are completely bogus and they are being run by so-called professionals, scientists, environmental professionals who get large amounts of money to do the bidding of companies by saying, oh, everything, uh, there'll be no problems. And if they are, they'll be mitigated in these following ways, you know, and then there are these, these permits go out with these long lists of, you know, things that have to be done to mitigate this and mitigate that, you know? The bottom line is we should have put our energy not into regulating these entities, but into stopping them from existing. So we have about five minutes left and I have to admit to you and publicly that I have done a sneaky thing. And my sneaky thing was you and I were supposed to talk about aluminum and also the harmful effects of tourism and also ecocide as a crime. Um, but I was so interested in what you had to say about bauxite that I intentionally did not change the subject in the hopes that you would come back again. <laughs> so I, I, I was a little bit disingenuous here. Um, so I would like for you to come back again to talk about tourism. Um, and then we can do one about ecocide too. Anyway, so now back to back to bauxite again. We have about five or six minutes left. And one of the questions I have is, 
let's say they put you for real, not nominally, they put you in charge, like you became the environmental minister for Jamaica now, or the environmental and cultural minister or something like that. Um, given that you can't go back in time and uh, not destroy these subsistence communities, what would you do now? Um, given, again, one more thing, given you're, you're giving great latitude, but you can't destroy the entire global economy. <laughs> um, you're not allowed to. So you have to work within the rubric of global capitalism. <laughs> what would you do to improve the cultural and ecological situation for those who have been harmed? Well, the first thing would be reparations. So um, there are communities that are trying to sue for some kind of reparations. We also have uh, lawsuits under our own constitution, which um, along the verbiage of the UN um, guarantees a clean and something environment and heritage, blah, blah, blah. Um, so the first thing would be um, the money that came in from, we had a, a, a levy and different things that's supposed to bring money into the, from bauxite and alumina. Um, it goes to the Bauxite Institute, which is an arm of the, a government arm of the industry. It goes into the general fund, et cetera. All of that would stop. Whatever money is left because they keep taking it would go back into the communities themselves. Um, and that would be a long process in deciding what those communities need and want. Um, there would be a moratorium, there would be an end to the aluminum industry in Jamaica and the process of reparations. And the process of reparations is manifold. There's the process of reparations on the national level, which is uh, the colonial level. So that's Great Britain and Spain for us. There's reparations on the corporate level. So that's um, all those corporations that extracted wealth from us. There is, uh, then there's beyond, there's the multinational level of uh, the European Union and other entities that have benefited from our, from basically extracting us to create their wealth. And then there is the, uh, the elite of Jamaica who have extracted uh, the, the wealth of the labor of, of the people of Jamaica by not paying them, et cetera, et cetera. So there are layers and layers and layers of people who owe us money and owe us resources. And that is in the form of reparations. Um, and that would then be used back into the communities um, in whichever ways could be possible, as well as um, then uh, remediating, such as um, the planting of trees, the, the um, renovation of um, small scale and subsistence agriculture, communities, all of that, and culture. So let's talk for just a moment about, um, and I know you're not a scientist in this area, so, so you may not have primary knowledge, but um, given that they've, that some of these areas have been turned into highly toxified areas, how i mean you talked about planting trees what what could be done actually to detoxify or to um to to help help nature come back right well the tree planting would be in places where we have to stop cutting trees down that's one thing in terms of these completely toxic places you know um how does one dismantle these toxic factories right where where does that stuff go you're going to ship it out somewhere else and toxify someplace else um how do you bring back these huge tailing entities of this um again i don't know who's done it um the science would have to say okay this is alkaline we need to add this blah 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 blah, blah. it would be a huge huge process um and um in one place they're supposedly um, doing this. I have not, it, I haven't seen the work and I am very skeptical um, because it's what used to be Alcan and is now Rio Tinto. <laughs> I mean, given Rio Tinto's 
um, you know, what they've been doing in places like Australia, I really am very skeptical, but they're supposedly rehabilitating this, some of the tailing ponds that they were responsible for. It's supposed to be a 10 year process. Um, I'm, I'm very skeptical um, because it's gonna, as you said, it's gonna take way more than 10 years. Um, so yes, that is part of it as again, not knowing the science, I don't know what it would entail, but I would imagine it would take a lot of work over many generations for sure. And that's another thing that just kills me about all of these issues is that there are huge subsidies go into all of these destructive activities. And, you know, people could say, if you just, if you destroy the aluminum industry there, you're going to cost a lot of jobs. But if you put those same subsidies into rehabilitation, um, you could have just as many jobs and the subsidies are already going out anyway. It's the same with the timber industry. We could just subsidize reforestation instead of deforestation. Um, exactly. And the fact is, um, it might be the case for the timber industry since they're using drones and all sorts of things. The aluminum industry hires very few people. Very few people. So when the government goes on and on about jobs, they're talking maybe 200 to 400 jobs. What they're talking about is their own income, the income that comes to the government. It's not about jobs. So what would you like to say about the bauxite industry in Jamaica that I have not given you the opportunity in the last 30 seconds? What do you want to leave? What do you want to leave listeners with? Oh, I, and I, yeah, I guess that's the thing. What do you want to leave listeners with about Jamaica and bauxite and colonialism? Well, they, you know, they probably haven't thought about where things come from in their lives and they might want to think about it. And they just need to realize that everything is dependent on the sacrifice of others, all creatures, all places, and that we have to stop this notion that it's okay that some places and some people and some species are sacrificable for our own convenience the notion of sacrifice has to end well thank you so much for that and uh thank you for your work in the world and i would like to thank listeners for listening my guest today has been esther figueroa this is derek jensen for resistance radio on the progressive radio network <laughs>